All right. You will need that catechism. And you'll, yeah, you'll need a table with people to sit at because they're going to want to talk to you and you're going to want to talk to them. And I like to do group discussion stuff and hopefully that goes well. Hopefully you like the people you're talking to. If you don't, just switch during, before, before the next discussion. Nobody will know. It'll be, it'll be a thing. All right. Hey everybody, I'm quite literally recording this from my iPhone in a hotel room in Jacksonville, Florida. Don't worry, Neil and I are planning to get together this week to talk all about all this stuff that's been going on and to give you a fresh episode. In the meantime, here's a talk I gave at RCAA class on basically how sacraments came about, where they come from, the Old Testament, how Jesus instituted them, all that stuff. So if you're a nerd and you like that kind of stuff, this is this one. Don't worry, we'll get some back to our, our regular stuff here uh, pretty soon. All right, God bless you guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, so what I'd like to do is I'd like everybody, do, I, I assume that uh, you guys are familiar a little bit with this. Some of you have opened it before. You know that they're kind of written in paragraphs. So what we're going to look at, we're going to par- look at paragraph 1131. So if you want to open up your catechism, paragraph 1131. This is in the in, the in brief section of the catechism, of the first part of the catechism. Um, I'm sorry, well, of the of the part of the Catechism on Sacraments, but the first section of the Catechism on the Sacraments. So, uh, 1131. And I want to look at this, uh, this paragraph that's right here. And this is going to be the outline for our class today. So I'm just going if to, you, if you guys are all there, if, you're, if your neighbor's not there, help them get there, just so that way they know uh, where they're at. It depends on the year of issue of your Catechism. Probably it's not going to match the one that I'm holding right now. <laughs> Yes, if you see the, the, the bolded 131, and it's just in numerical order. So if you're, if you're, if you're less than one thir- uh, 1131, then go forward some more. If you're more than one, 1131, then go backwards some. Yeah. All right. All right, so here's the, here's the paragraph that we're looking at. Everybody there? We good to go? All right. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. That was a mouthful, and I'm going to spend the next hour and a half breaking that open. If you follow your little note sheet that I passed out to you, you'll see that that first section that we're going to cover is that first sentence. Sacraments are efficacious signs instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. And those little underlined parts that I put in there, I'm going to give you definitions to those. So it kind of makes a little bit more sense as we move forward here so you know what we're talking about. So first thing it says is that the sacraments are efficacious signs. What does that mean? What is an efficacious sign? So an efficacious sign is a sign that actually does what it symbolizes. For example, a stop sign is not an efficacious sign. Because people blow through those all the time, right? And you're like, you got to watch when you're walking because people are just going to fly around there. There's this one that uh, I may or may not run constantly, but there's this one <laughs> that if you are driving on, um, what is that? That is a uh, uh, Saint? Uh, no, that's that's a uh, Southern. High, no, what is this? What is the street over here? 
Let's rerun. Sunridge Heights. This is Sunridge Heights. If you follow it all the way down past the school to where it stops, there's a right-hand turn that you can only make a right-hand turn, and there's no other streets on that side and no other streets on that side. But for some reason, there's a stop sign right there, right? Nobody ever stops there because there's no traffic there. There's no crosswalk there. There's no opposite streets. There's only one way you can go and one way anybody else can go. So everybody just blows through that stop sign because that stop sign is not an efficacious sign. It's not going to make anybody stop, right? It doesn't actually affect reality in any kind of way. But let's think of another sign that does affect reality. An umpire, for example. If you're playing a baseball game and, the, and you, hit, you hit the ball because you're supposed to, and then you run to first base and the first baseman catches it and he swings and he touches you, but you think you touch the base first, everybody looks to the umpire to make the efficacious call for what's actually, what's actually happened in the game. What is real here, right? What is, what is being called? And he will say that that person is safe and move his hands like that to say that he's safe, or he'll say that he's out. That is an efficacious sign because now he has affected the reality of the game by the sign that he made in his words and in his gestures. That makes sense? So, and, if, and what you'll come to recognize here is that if you, if you take this analogy, which I'm going to, and I'm going to drive it into the ground, so don't worry about that. So if you take this analogy, and let's say that that's why the signs and, and what he says and what he does actually matters. If you, if you hit the, the ball, you run to first base, and then the guy, uh, first baseman, gets the ball, and he tags you, but you think to touch the baseman first, and everybody, everybody looks over at the umpire, and the umpire says, Shabbat What does that mean? He's ruined the sign, and so now nobody even knows what that means anymore. So the, the words and the signals actually matter, because if you destroy those, you destroy the sign, and, nobody, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense in reality. Okay, so that's what an efficacious sign is, okay? So that's an efficacious sign of what, though? An efficacious sign of grace. Like in the definition, yeah, that's, I'm just going straight through the definition. Efficacious sign of grace, right? And so grace, this is the complicated thing. So what I've done here is I've written grace. And then we're going to go through a bunch of definitions of grace, right? These are, Craig is smiling back there because he's like, I like seeing definitions of grace because he is also a nerd. <laughs> and so if you, if you look down here, I have favor, sanctifying grace, actual grace, sacramental grace, charisms. I'm not going to go into depth on all of these. I'm going to go into depth on a couple of them, but you're going to get some of these other ones um, in, in subsequent classes, right? But I just wanted to make sure you have some of the definitions here and what we mean by grace. So when we, mean, when we say grace, we might mean God's favor. We might mean sanctifying grace. We might mean actual grace. And then you'll be able to plug them into the context accordingly as, as you learn to speak Catholicese. Is that a thing? Maybe it is. I don't know. All right, so what is grace? So the first one that I want to look at here is I do want to look at favor. Because whenever we talk about grace, and whose favor are we talking about if we're talking about grace? Talk about God's favor, right? So God, grace in, in Scripture is often used as, as uh, God's favor, right? And I like to look at the Old Testament for this because it's, it's, it's how, God, uh, how you can know you have God's favor in the Old Testament, right? Think about, think about Moses, for example. You guys know the story of Moses, yes? So Moses goes into Egypt and he's like, let my people go, right? He's like, well, what sign did God send Moses with? What, th- that, way he, that way the people would know that um, he is speaking with God's favor, that he is speaking on God's behalf? Let me know what sign that he's, he's sent with him. It was his staff. It was his staff. He says, all right, take this staff, right? And that way people will know my presence is with you, right? So what does he do with the staff? He throws it on the ground, he turns it into a snake, and eats up the other ones. And sometimes we forget that God's presence was very much tied to that staff, right? Especially in the plagues. 
because it was when, whenever the, the, um, the, the river runs red, the Nile runs red. What does he do? He says, take the staff that is in your hand and dip it into the river. And then the river will run red. He says, take the staff that is in your hand, the sign of my presence, strike the dust of the ground, and it'll come up as gnats. Take the staff that is in your hand, stretch it over the sea, and it will part, right? It's the, it's the staff that was, that was symbolizing and, and proving God's presence, God's faithfulness. See, God has always done this throughout salvation history. He's used the material world to communicate his grace. In this particular case, this is favor. I want to look at one more example from the Old Testament like that, and then we'll move, move forward from here. But Samson is, is a great example of this. Are you guys familiar with Samson and Delilah? That great story? A handful of people? Some people not, not so much, right? So Samson was a, um, he was a judge of Israel, and uh, he was, whenever he was born, he was dedicated to be a Nazarite, right? And Nazarite was, was typically this really unique period of time that a, per, that a Jewish man could enter into his life, right? It was a period of time that you enter into to draw near to God. There were additional values. You had to be, remain clean the whole time, which means no touching any dead things, uh, no sexual intercourse, no, no any of those things. But then a Nazarite had additional vows that they were keeping, right? No strong drink, and they, would not, they wouldn't cut their hair during the time that they were a Nazarite. Right? Bless you. And the reason why they wouldn't cut their hair is so that way you could kind of measure how long that you lived as like devoted to God. Like it'd be kind of a precursor to Lent, right? So we have this special time of Lent where we, where we, we um, give some of our spiritual practices and we, we try to, to, to um, kind of conform our life more perfectly to Christ, right? That was the Nazarite, usually only for a particular period of time. Samson's unique because it said that he was gonna be a Nazarite from birth. So he said, never let a razor touch his head. He needs to stay clean, no touching of dead things, no having sexual intercourse, no drinking strong drink. None, none of that stuff could ever happen with Samson. And God's presence and God's power would be upon him for, for, the, for the sake of him keeping his vows, okay? All right, but Samson, if you know the story, there's only a handful of other people in, in all of scripture that, have, that may have had that. Um, Samuel was one of them, was from birth. And then maybe John the Baptist, there's some debate on all that, but it sounds like it. Anyway, that's other nerd stuff that doesn't matter, but I'm going to go on tangents. So, <laughs> surprise. All right, so Samson now, he has these vows that he's supposed to be keeping from birth, right? But what the story of Samson reveals that he's, he's not keeping these vows, right? So one of the first vows that, um, that he broke was that while, one day while he was out in the, in the wilderness, he sees a dead lion and there are bees like making honey inside the dead lion, right? So what does he do is he goes and he, he grabs a, the, the, the honey from there. So he's not supposed to touch anything that's dead. Well, here you go. And he starts eating the honey and he gives some to his parents. He made them ritual and cream, which he wasn't a good child, let me tell you. And then later on in his life, he'll take the, a, a, a donkey's uh, jawbone and he'll use it to kill a bunch of people, which, you know, the, the, he's not supposed to touch the dead, dead thing there. And he does that anyway, right? And so there's, there's one of the vows that's constantly broken by him. And then also because he was a great warrior, you know, he liked to party after his, his victories, right? So he drank a lot whenever he liked to party with his great victories. So there's another of those vows just broken down there. And then whenever he drank a lot and his enemies knew this about him, he liked women. And so they would try to get women to trick him to figure out where his strength is coming from, right? So he'd sleep with all these women, one of which being the, the, the um, one that the story kind of surrounds being this woman Delilah. And the Delilah would ask, where's the source of your strength coming from? How is God giving you his power? All this stuff. And it, she, he tells her a bunch of lies and stuff like this. But then whenever they, they, she convinces him finally to tell her the actual truth, 
what's his response? Well, his response is that, you know, he's a Nazarite, and, a, and the only vow that he hasn't broken is the vow of his hair. And then whenever they destroyed the sign of the vow, the favor of God, the presence of God left. Just like if we destroyed the sign of the umpire. It no, no longer affects the reality of the game. So the sign that God had given him has now been taken away. It's been destroyed, and the presence of God has left him. Man, oh, we're seeing the sacramentality all up. Some of you guys are Catholic. You're catching up to this. You're like, oh, this is starting to make a little bit of sense, right? And so, so now if you think back to the covenants, you guys did through the covenants, yes? You went through the five covenants of the Old Testament? Cool, all right. So if you think back through the covenants, like each one of the covenant had a sign. And what was the purpose of the sign? It was always a material thing, something that, that you did, this material aspect that, or something that you, that you recognized as a material thing that you're like, okay, that's how I know that, this, that, I'm, that I'm in the covenant with God. That's how I know God's faithfulness, right? Noah's Ark, you have the bow, right? The sign is like Abraham. You have the circumcision, a very painful sign, but a sign, you know? It's, you know, you have, the, the, you have the, the sign of all the, uh, the, the sacrifices in the temples, right? You have these signs that are saying, okay, this is how you know you're in covenant with me is by these signs. This is how you know you're in relationship with me is by these signs, right? So, and if you, if you did not have the sign, that's why there's this really interesting story uh, in Moses uh, where Moses is headed back to do what God has asked him to do. Have you guys talked about this story? It's like, he's heading back to Pharaoh now, right? He's, he's, he's like, okay, I'm gonna take my mission. I've got Aaron with me. I've got my wife with me. I've got my, my son that I've had with me and I'm headed, headed back to do what God has asked me to do. And it says, an angel of the Lord was sent to him to try to kill him. This is a bizarre story. Like, aren't you on the way to do God's will? And what happens is his wife says, oh, your son is not, is not circumcised. So she circumcises his son right there. And, and then the angel left. Well, why is that? Because he needed to be part of in the communion with God. If you're going on God's mission, you need to be in communion. You need to have the sign of the communion. You need to have the sign of what God has, is entering into here, right? So that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I want to just use, that's, that's how you know God's favor is present with you. Do you have a question? Go for it. Sure. Which story was that? That's or, Exodus chapter 3, 4, something like that. Where the angels yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think it's either the end of chapter 3 or beginning of chapter 4. I am, I'm a little old in my young age, and so I get those mixed up a bit. All right, so, all right, so that's, that's favor. As I, as I mentioned some of these other ones, I'll go ahead and kind of star them so you guys know that, that, I, that I hit the definition there. Okay. So the next definition here that we have, so they're efficacious signs of grace, right? So that's what a sacrament is. It's a sign that's letting you know God's presence is here. And it's actually imparting God's presence in some kind of way. Maybe like in the Old Testament, it's, it's favor or it's strength or whatever it happens to be, right? All right, so let's move forward and see what these sacraments are. And so these sacraments then are instituted by Christ is the next line that it gives you. Okay, what the heck does that mean? Instituted by Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you could open those up to um, John chapter 16, Verse 14, this is the, uh, the end of, uh, the, um, of the Last Supper where Jesus is kind of giving his uh, priestly prayer to, to his people and, and uh, giving his last uh, dialogue, his, his final discourses to his disciples here. So this is the Last Supper, it's all, the, all that's taken care of. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he has this great line in here that um, some people in, in modern, um, modern America kind of abused a little bit. He says, uh, this is about the Holy Spirit, but he says, uh, he will glorify me, being the Holy Spirit, because he will take from me, he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. 
For everything that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says that what the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to take everything that is mine and give it to you. Okay, well, some people are like, well, that means that I, that I could, that, um, that, that now I could just ask for anything and, and Jesus is going to bring it to me because all things belong to Jesus, right? Well, no, Jesus kind of spent three years of his life showing what is proper to him, right? Let's look at, um, let's look at the sacrament of baptism really quick. Why was Jesus baptized? If it was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus is sinless, then why would he go and get baptized? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right? Kind of. That, that had, definitely has something to do with it, right? Pope Benedict XVI has a, a wonderful book that I want to recommend to you guys. It's actually a, a trilogy of books called Jesus of Nazareth, right? And uh, from the Jordan to the Transfiguration is where this comes from. When he talks about uh, Jesus entering into baptism and the, and the necessity of why Jesus enters into baptism, and he's saying that what he's doing there is he's entering into solidarity with the people. And, and he essentially goes on to say that whenever Jesus is entering to the waters of baptism, he's not being cleansed by the waters, but instead he's making the waters ready for our baptisms. It's almost like, it's almost like you know, when Chuck Norris jumps into the water, the water doesn't, Chuck Norris doesn't get wet, he gets, the water gets Chuck Norris. Yeah. <laughs> Except for when Jesus jumps into the water and gets baptized, Jesus doesn't remove all, get, get any seeds removed. Have, the water gets Jesus, so now we can baptize, right? So that's, that's, that's the whole thing right here. And so this kind of starts to make sense that, that Jesus is like, okay, so I'm giving you what I undertook upon me, okay? What has happened to me is happening to you. That's why we call ourselves Christian. Christian little means little Jesus or little Christ, mini Christ. That's what it means. So everything as a Christian, we're taking on everything that Jesus has. The spirit in the sacrament is giving us, imparting to us what rightly belonged to Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. Okay, so we have that baptism right there. So he was baptized. I, I threw in some Bible verses in there that where Jesus is talking about. So you can look these up. I'm not going to go through each one of them because I threw a lot in there. But um, like when he talks to Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, go out and baptize. So that's what those verses are, the second line that you'll see on there. Those are all these verses where Jesus is kind of commanding baptism or kind of more overtly saying, you guys got to baptize or need to be baptized or whatever. Right, and then confirmation, right? What about confirmation? What is confirmation? You guys will get a chance to talk a little bit more depth of confirmation, but for, for simplicity's sake, what we could call it is like a baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's a receiving of the Holy Spirit that's like unto Pentecost, where you're sent out to mission. And uh, who was anointed with the Spirit? Well, Jesus was at his baptism, but also he's Jesus, right? <laughs> and so he has the Holy Spirit, right? And um, there's, there's this great... Um, there's this great line in Acts chapter one where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, he says, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So now, now what he's saying is like the power that I have, I will give to you. And, he, and this, this is what makes uh, the disciples start to connect the dots between what Jesus said at the end of the last supper in, in John chapter 14 to 17 to what's happening in the book of Acts. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus says, hey, you guys, I'm going away. But you're going to do, if you believe me because of the works that I've done, you're going to do greater works than, than me. And they're like, Jesus, you like did all the works. Like, how can we possibly do greater things than you? He says, it's because the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to give you my power. And there's a lot more of you than there is of, the, of Jesus here on this earth right now until he ascends. And, and we'll get into that theology later as well. All right. 
All right, so that's, uh, uh, that's confirmation. So the, the Pentecost is, is us receiving the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit that has that the same Holy Spirit that Jesus received. Jesus' life is an archetype for the Christian life, right? It's not just that Jesus is our Savior, but Jesus is saying, look at me, you'll look in, and know what it means to be a Christian, right? And it's not just about doing good things, although that is definitely a part of it, but it's about being in communion with, with the Father, it's about receiving what Jesus has received, this baptism. He's receiving the spirit of what Jesus has received here, this, this, this power. It's receiving what, or it's, and this Jesus is himself here in the Eucharist, right? Jesus spends an entire chapter in John's gospel, John chapter six. Well, not an entire chapter. It is if like you read the implication pieces. But in the, the end of um, John chapter six, verses 22 to 59, he spends the entire time there telling people that he's bread and wine. He says, eat me. Right, those are the most the most controversial words and in, in come out of Jesus' mouth is whenever he says that my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Uh, if you therefore, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life within you. It's controversial because he says in in the Greek he 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 intensifies that word by saying not just eat me, like chew or gnaw on me. He says unless you gnaw and chew on the flesh of the Son of God, you have no life within you. It was so controversial that a few verses later, it says that a lot of the people who believed and followed him no longer followed him because of that teaching. And Jesus didn't say, guys, I was being hyperbole or I was being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was being dramatic. I was, I was speaking Symbolic. symbolically. You know, he didn't say that. He said, uh, bye. He turned to his disciples, his 12. He says, are you guys going to leave too? Because this is it, right? He just says, I'm giving you myself. And then he institutes it. He says, how does he, how does he institute it? Well, the Last Supper. Last Supper in the Gospels, you see that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Take and eat, take and drink. And then, and then that's, and he says, do this. You have to keep doing this because this is, this is how I give myself to you. Not just all of my powers and everything that belongs to me, but how I give myself to you. I usually do the Eucharist one last, but I wanted to um, make a, a connection between those three sacraments there that uh, you'll hear about a little bit later. Baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist are traditionally called the sacraments of initiation, right? And they're kind of lumped together in that, in that full foldness is because that's how you, you are fully initiated into the church is you receive baptism, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit in confirmation, and then you receive Jesus himself in the Eucharist, right? The whole point of that is saying that, that baptism gives us, the, the, gives us access to the other sacraments. It gives us access primarily to the Eucharist because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for communion and union with Christ. Confirmation gives us, gives us the power, and it's, it's, um, hopefully you guys will get to this in, in your confirmation bit, but it's, it's that power of the prophetic mission to go out and reach to others and say like, hey, you know, Jesus is here. He is real. He is present. God wants to be with you, right? Come to the Eucharist. Come to his home. Come and receive him, right? So that's also ordered towards the Eucharist, which is why you receive in the Eucharist is the final aspect of the initiation. And then the other sacraments, as we'll get to here, have their kind of particular designations as well, right? So if we look at anointing of the sick, well, Jesus healed people. I, I only put like a couple, I don't even think I put, I just put two verses in there because I'm like, pretty, I was pretty confident you guys knew that Jesus healed people, right? Uh, and then one of the ones that I threw in there um, for funsies was Luke chapter 6, verse 7 through 13, where he, he has the mission of the 12, and he sends them out to heal people. He says, not only am I going to, do I heal people, but I'm going to give you the authority to heal people. So go out there and heal people. I need you to do that. And then later on in James, there's that further command to go, go forth and heal people. So that's that aspect there. 
So we are in, we are becoming, we're seeing ourselves more and more as Christ is, right? As the, the person of Christ, the archetype of Christ to which we are trying to measure to, the, which we are trying to follow, we're trying to be like, to em- emulate. Penance, Jesus forgave sins. One of my favorite scenes in all of scripture is the, uh, the, the paralytic. Have you guys did, went over the paralytic? I usually do that in a class at some point. I wasn't sure if we did it with you guys before, but talking about the paralytic out of Mark chapter two, does anybody know that story? Handful of people. This is a great story. It's one of my favorites because um, Jesus is hilarious, and I think you miss that if you, don't, if you don't just read through the gospel sometimes because you have this paralytic. Jesus has been known for healing a bunch of people and doing all these great miracle works, and so people are coming to him by the crowds, and they're, they're so close to him in this house that like this, this paralytic is like, this is my only chance to get healed. He comes in through the roof. He's like, he's like I can't get to him, so, but he's got these great friends. They're like, don't worry, we're gonna wreck this guy's house, right? We're gonna go up on the roof, we're gonna tear a hole in it, we're gonna lower you down there to make, you, make sure you get in front of Jesus. And after all that work, Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I would have been like, thanks, but is there anything else, <laughs> you know? But that, that's, that's, that's what, he, what he says there because he's putting it in the right order before he heals them, right? He's saying what is most important is the healing of your soul. I'm going to heal the body too. Don't get me wrong there, but I'm going to heal your soul first because that's what's most important. And then later on, after the resurrection, he gives the same authority to his disciples. In John chapter 20, he breathes and gives them the Holy Spirit. And he says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. Later on, Paul will tell people to confess your sins to one another uh, so that way you might be forgiven, right? Those two sacraments, the anointing of the sick and penance are traditionally called the sacraments of healing for obvious reasons, right? It's, it's that it's in the, uh, it's that, right order of the paralytic, right? The healing of the soul and the healing of the body. That's what God does. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus extends that authority to us. We need to go and do that. He even tells us to forgive us, uh, forgive our trespasses as we, as we have been forgiven, right? So we have to give, forgive others who sin against us as God has forgiven us, right? So, okay. So moving forward into marriage here. All right, so Jesus is the bridegroom. I threw in a couple of verses like um, to, to where it talks about Jesus as the bridegroom. If that's an interesting title for Jesus for you, there's a fantastic book that I want to recommend by a guy named Brant Petrie. It's called Jesus the Bridegroom. So if that's an interesting title to you to see Jesus as the bridegroom, I recommend that book. And he goes through Old Testament all the way through Revelation, walking through this idea of what it means to be the bridegroom. But that's who Jesus is. And who, if Jesus is the bridegroom, then who is the bride? Us, the church, yes, we are his bride. And that's actually the analogy that, the, the two analogies that I put in there are both that analogy, um, but used in different ways off of Jesus' lips there. And uh, John chapter two, verses one through 12, I put in there because that's Jesus' first miracle, or first public miracle, where, and it happens in the context of a wedding. And, the, and I put in some catechism references in there because the Catholic church has always seen this as kind of Jesus um, elevating the status of marriage. It's like whenever, whenever people get married, I am present there. I'm choosing to pr- produce this miracle here to give my presence there, right? Later on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19, he'll emphasize this even more and make, make marriage even more firm whenever he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and those, his opponents there where they're like, hey, but Moses gave us the ability to divorce our wives. And Jesus says, yeah, but in the beginning it wasn't so. What God has joined together let no man tear asunder, right? And that's, that's what Jesus is, is kind of affirming there. He's saying that, no, marriage is something else than what you've been treating it as. 
In fact, St. Paul will use this in Ephesians chapter 5, and he'll say that marriage is actually a sign, it's a sacrament that's representing and pointing to the mystery of Christ and the church. So that's what marriage is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like the bridegroom dying for his bride. If you guys are married, you know that marriage is a lot like death. <laughs> ah, that was funny. My wife would hurt me. I'm just kidding. Let's move forward. All right. And then we have the holy orders, right? Holy orders, the priesthood, right? Jesus is the high priest, basically the entire book of Hebrews, right? So I didn't put in any specific quotes there, but if you want to read the entire book of Hebrews... Uh, you'll see how Jesus is the high priest and nobody can do it better than the author of the Hebrews. So I didn't, right? But just take a look at that. And and then he establishes a priesthood, right? He he does it first of all in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, where he establishes Peter as the the head of this church. He says, on this foundation, I'll build my church and I give you the keys. What you bind is bound, what you loose is loose. And then he does it again for the rest of his 12 in Matthew chapter 18, he says, whenever you have a problem with somebody, you bring him to the church because what you guys bind is bound and what you guys loose is loosed, right? That's Matthew chapter 18. And so this is, this is Jesus kind of establishing the priesthood. And he does it uh, more, more formally at the Last Supper when he washes the, the feet of the disciples. And he says, what I've done for you, you know, you guys call me teacher and master, and that's, that's true. But what I've done for you, you need to do for everybody else. You guys are the servants and it needs to be done, right? And so that's, that's kind of the institution of the priesthood there. Um, so those are, the, 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 those are who Jesus is and what Jesus has given to us. This is what it means to be Christian. It means to, to receive Jesus, to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to have what belongs to Jesus. And all of these are ordered towards the, the reception of, uh, that's why we call the Eucharist the source and summit, because all of them are ordered towards that intimacy towards being one with Christ, towards receiving that kind of unity with Christ. Baptism gives us access. Confirmation gives us the prophetic powers to call, other, to call others to receive what God has given us, right? Uh, this, the anointing of the sick heals us so that we might be able to receive the sacrament. In fact, you receive the sacrament as part of the healing of the anointing of the sick. Or, or the, um, the penance cleanses us from sin so, that we, can, so we can receive the sacrament of the Eucharist with, uh, with a um, proper disposition, right? Marriage is, a, is an image of the union of God that's ordered towards the receiving. This. You come and bring in your family. You come and bring in everyone to that union of God in the, in the Eucharist. Holy orders is so that we might have access to the Eucharist, that we might actually have the Eucharist by the priests. They're all ordered towards that. That's why we call the Eucharist the source and summit of the faith. Everything comes from that because it's Jesus, and everything returns to that because it's Jesus. And this is what it means to actually be in a relationship with a person. And if, if, if we think about our, our, our faith as a relationship, that makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Because if, if this is a sign of being in a relationship with God, then what are we starting to see here? We're starting to see that this is like, oh, how do we enter into that relationship? Well, there has to be a starting point, right? For my wife and I, like, there's a very clear starting point of like when we were in a relationship. Right? It was like one time we were just, we were just friends hanging out, and then, she, then I told her that uh, she's pretty, and, and then uh, she said, I like you, and then uh, that was kind of it. And, I, and then she, my wife is so funny, though. She's like, so are we dating now? And I'm like, yeah, we are, because I'm smooth, right? And so, <laughs> and so that was like a, a clear marking point. But then there was another clear marking point, right? Because I, I proposed, 
right? That's a clear marking point. I'm in relationship with this woman, right? That's the baptism. We're in relationship with God, right? And then in, in, in this relationship with God, you know, we're going we're gonna to hurt God. Just like I, I offend my wife sometimes. And sometimes when I offend my wife, uh, she can brush it off. She's like, oh, just, that's just my husband being an idiot because he's an idiot, right? But other times she's like, uh-uh, you're in trouble. I'm like, oh, crap. This requires a face-to-face apology. You know, so I go to her and I say, honey, I'm sorry for A, B, and C. And all the other things that I, that I, that I probably should have apologized for but never have, right? You know, that's, that's right? That's, that's it. And it's, it's have, what about having communion? Receiving, being, being with the person just because they're the person, right? Not, not trying to get anything out of, out of my wife, but just being in her presence, in that intimacy. That's the best. That's the best. Whenever the, the whole goal of relationship is just being with her. That's what it's all about. Raising kids in that. Bringing kids into that. You see what the, this is? What religion is, fundamentally, that's where, religari, that's where we get our word relationship. God's saying, I want a relationship with you, and it's a real one. It's a real one with physical things, and this is how you enter into it. This is how you receive what the catechism calls it. See, oh, uh, well, I'm not going to get to that part yet. But this is the, uh, in each one of these, each one of these uh, that, that you receive have their own, what we call sacramental graces or powers. I mentioned confirmations where it gives you that kind of like that prophetic oomph to be able to go out and preach the gospel unashamedly and unafraid to bring others into the church, right? Because that's kind of like the sacramental grace of confirmation, right? And so each one has its own proper sacramental graces. They give us additional powers to go and do a thing, right? You are more like Christ because you received this sacrament, okay? So each one of them have, have something like that, okay? All right, the next line is that it's that these have been entrusted to the church. And I threw in this, and we'll, we won't spend too much time on this, but if you want to look it up, it's, it's paragraph 1117, 1118. Um, I, the only reason why I threw this in here is because I know some people might be coming from other traditions or, or maybe coming from a background, a Catholic background, where they're like, well, I read in the textbook one time that there was only two sacraments of the church or at one time, or maybe there was 22 sacraments of the church at another time. Well, that's not exactly right, right? And so the, the, what there's... There has never been a time in church history where there were only two sacraments. There's never been a time in church history where there were 22 sacraments. There may have been times in church history where we defined sacrament so narrow as to which we only recognized two, or where we defined sacrament so broadly that you could see almost anything as a sacrament. Because if if a sacrament is just an external sign that represents God, well, there's a lot of things that do that, right? And so that, uh, it wasn't until um, later on in our history we were like, no, when we, we mean sacrament, we mean something proper like this, instituted by Christ that confers a particular type of grace that is ordered towards sanctifying, which is what we're getting into, right? In this very last line, right? This very last line, it says, where divine life is dispensed to us. The sacrament's primary purpose, they give us additional graces in the sacramental grace, but its primary purpose is this, sanctifying grace. And sanctifying grace is that divine life dispensed to us. That is ultimately the point of the sacraments. What is divine life? It's Christ's life, right? We just saw that. How do we enter into Christ's life? It's through baptism. We receive baptism so that we might be what St. Paul called in Christ, right? That's why St. Paul, when he's on the way to Damascus and he gets knocked down by that blinding light, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he didn't say that. Why are you persecuting 
People who believe in me? He didn't say that either. Why are you persecuting my followers? Nope. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus. Because those who have been baptized are in Christ. That's what makes you in relationship with Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. That's what imparts all that Christ has done as a right in your life. Because now you are an adopted son of daughter, son or daughter of God, officially an heir, and now the Holy Spirit can give you everything that belonged rightly to Christ. All the other sacraments. That perfect union with God. All right, that's, that's sacramental grace. And it's that grace, if we have all that, God, that Jesus has, then when we die, we don't die. We enter into fullness of life with God in heaven. That's what sacramental grace does. It gives us Jesus' life so we can have union with the Father, not just in heaven, but also in this life through the sacraments. That's the point. God loves you so much that he wants you in heaven with him, but he doesn't want to wait that long. He wants you with him here. He wants you with him here. And that's why he established all of this, so that you can be in intimate union with him here in this life and in the next. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter four, or Matthew, in John chapter 14, is like, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I'm still here and nobody else will get it. But I've given you everything. I've established all the things. You just got to be able to see through the eyes of how God established this world, how he's always communicated himself in the Old Testament through all the covenants, and then in the New Covenant where he has these signs. Right? So I believe that that's where I want to I pause and then move you to a, a discussion. So let's bring this back here. So, so we're talking about the sacraments, how that puts us in communion with God and how this is, this is the, the essence of the Christian life is being in this relationship with God and God gives us the way how to be in relationship with him through these sacraments. So um, this next part of that definition that we got out of there says that the visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. So I'm saying that this is a long way of saying that, okay, so there, you can re, the, the church has entrusted these, uh, entrusted these rights and we're going to help you receive them, right? We're going to help you get w- what Jesus gave you, right? That's our job. And so the visible rights of which they um, uh, are structured in aid to that, right? And so the most fundamental of all this is what we call the form and matter of a sacrament. Every sacrament has the, its particular essence. Like, if this is not there, you did not receive the sacrament. That's called the form and the matter. The form are the words that are said, and the matter is the thing that's, um, that was part of it. So baptism is the easiest, right, so to look at. Whenever you look at baptism, the proper form is saying that I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the form. It's not I baptize you in the name of uh, Mark Anthony and Mark Wahlberg, and you know, and Mark, and, and I don't know who another Mark, right? <laughs> there you go. All right, you know, so that's that's not the proper form. So so when you obscure, whenever you obscure the sign, you you obscure the reality. You you break the reality of the thing. You cannot you can't mess with the sign. Umpire can't just say right. He's got to say you're safe. You're out. You can't obscure that. It's got to be clear, right? So that's the same thing when it, when it comes to receiving the, the grace of the sacraments here. You, you mess with the sign, 
you mess with the grace, right? So you don't mess with any of that. So if you're at a mass and somebody's baptizing incorrectly or, or somebody's doing something incorrectly, I listen Claire carefully to some of those things because I'm like, even a priest is not allowed to mess with any of that stuff. You can't. You have to say the thing that's, that is essential for the sacrament, the form. All right, the matter. I can't just baptize you with Kool-Aid, although that would be cool because then you might come out red. Be awesome. Be like changing all these babies' colors all over the place. <laughs> all right, you, know, you can't do that, right? I got to baptize with water, right? That's, that's the essential elements of it. And I, and I wrote down the, um, all these in here. So uh, if you guys want to go through them, uh, you can. I know they're going to be touched on a bit as each one of the, Yeah, did you have a question? Shoot, go for it. Can you just, uh, we discussed this with Craig, can you just briefly, like, the Catholic Church accepts baptisms from the other Christian religions, but, like, uh, LDS, like, that, that's a different kind of baptism. Correct. So can you just kind of, if you have knowledge, can you elaborate on what, what how that is? is Affecting? Who, is, who, uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so so the other piece that's, that is involved with form and, and matter is the intention. Yeah. So, like, uh, for example, my son, yeah. if he's playing mass in, at the house, right? Yeah. Um, oh, well, this wouldn't work because he's not a priest. But it, let's assume that he was a priest, which is weird. But let's, uh, that he's playing mass. He can't just take bread and say, he's got bread, which is the proper form, which pro- proper matter, right? He can't just say, this is my body, which is the proper form, and then it's transubstantiated. And he's not intending to do what the church does. He's playing. Him, him uh, if, if my, my daughter's playing house, and she marries somebody. She's she's not you know even even though it's the uh, the people in the in the uh, that are getting married that are giving the sacrament to one another, you know that's that's not an actual sacrament that takes place because my daughter's not intending to actually marry anybody there, right? She's just playing a game, right? And the same thing goes for um, the LDS because the LDS form, if you look at it, it's the same. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it's with water. However. Their intention is different because they don't mean the same thing whenever they say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't mean the one God in whom we're relationship. They mean three different gods that do something different each one of them, right? And so that's why that one's not, um, that one's not accepted. And that was actually more of a recent one too. Was that the 90s or the late 80s where that was? Do you remember? It was at least the 90s because it was when I was in this diocese. Okay. So it was in the 90s whenever that actually formally came through, whenever that, that, question, that question was brought up and they said, okay, that's, that's a good point because we actually don't have a pronouncement on this one. So we need to take it to the theologians to see, does this uphold the uh, intention of the sacrament? And they said, well, they, we... I'm sorry? For a while, after the USCCB declared it, this diocese was the only diocese for a while that still accepted LDS baptisms. And later, the local bishop made a statement saying we no longer did. Okay. We were kind of an anomaly, and I don't know why we were late to the party on that one, but it's just a little fact about... We tend to be late to the party. I tend to be late to the party. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. So, I, I don't mean to... No, keep going. Yeah. I just don't want to be brief on this. But, sure. So, but... Don't the Eastern uh, Catholics or Eastern Orthodox Catholics, don't they teach that it's, because this is Trinity stuff, I know, sorry, <laughs> the, uh, that it's three separate? No. And then, no? They're, they're, Eastern, they firmly believe in the Trinity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the LDS is unique in that because they okay. baptize with the right form and they don't believe in the Trinity. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. The, thank you for clarifying. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Anytime. Can you also just hit on how strict that wording is? Oh, yeah. I can't say creator. Correct. You can't just say, I, I baptize you in the name of the creator, 
the Redeemer and the Sanctifier. You can't do that because it has to be in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because those are, that's what's revealed by God. Whenever we do in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, we put God in relation to us rather than God in relation to himself. For example, God is my Creator. God is my Redeemer. And God is my Sanctifier. Yeah, but God told you that I am Father, that I am Son, and I am Holy Spirit, right? That's how he revealed himself to us. And so what we do whenever we mess that up is we, we change the order of it around. We say that God, everything that you do is in reference to me. says, no, I have an imminent nature and I revealed it to you and you get to receive it. And so that's what we're actually receiving is his imminent nature and not just him in relationship to how I experience him. Right? We receive him. Right? Did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, I, I was just saying, uh, when, when, when do they do that, the creator, the <laughs> it happens. It happens out out in the United States from time to time. You'll get something where we got um, we got notification a couple of years ago. Of somebody doing in a nearby diocese that had done that, um, and that uh, we were like, okay, so that that affects us a little bit because if somebody coming from that diocese here is asking for confirmation, I got to get them baptized first. You know th- that kind of stuff. Um, it, so it messes up a lot. Because baptism is ultra important. It gives you access to all the it gives you access to Christ, right? That's why Jesus was so adamant about baptism. It's um, I mean, if just thinking about this, let's think about how serious baptism is. Jesus, uh, a take the Nicodemus conversation out of it. He has this late night conversation with Nicodemus where he says flat out, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? But let's take it to, to Matthew's gospel before he ascends into, into heaven, right? He calls all of his disciples. He says, guys, come up to this mountain with me. Like, oh my goodness, this is, this is going to be Jesus' last words. This is going to be important because God is calling us to the mountain. What was the last time God called a bunch of people up into the mountain? Well, that's Moses and the Ten Commandments. This is, this is serious stuff, right? And so God, or Jesus calls them all up to the mountain and they all, they, they all go worship there and they're like unsure of themselves at the same time because like this is a big deal. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth. He says, go therefore and preach. Go therefore and teach all the nations what I've taught you, teaching them to follow me and become my disciples. Like, oh, that all makes sense. And he says, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't make sense unless that's important. Unless God's somewhere up up there in heaven like, hey guys, watch this. This is gonna be great, right? I'm going to get all these guys to go into other countries and just splash people with water. It's going to be awesome, right? <laughs> like that doesn't, it doesn't make sense unless it's important, unless it actually does something. That's why it's so profound that St. Paul is, is revealed to St. Paul that Jesus says, those who are persecuting me, not my followers, not those who believe in me, but those who have been baptized are persecuting literally me because they are in Christ. They are Christian. They have, what, what happens to Jesus happens to us, which means when Jesus died and rose from the dead, we die and we rise from the dead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, keep going. This, keep going. This yeah. form and matter things are really important. Yep. How come, you know, infants, we just sprinkle them with water and say, you're good to go, and then with adults or we... Well, the form is the same. The matter is the same in baptism. So when you're, even when you baptize an infant... You say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that, that, nothing, none of that changes in the form. Okay. But, but the amount of saying, the form doesn't matter. What he's saying is we know someone that was part of the different faith. Sure. And told us that when, because we were baptized, we weren't dunked fully. Immersion? Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah. It doesn't count. Sure. So some people, uh, some denominations particularly, say that baptism, in order for it to be valid, is full immersion. But that's not actually what the church has ever taught. And uh, you can go as early as uh, the beginning of the second century. There's a, well, maybe arguing the date for this, you could say it might even be the, the late end of the first century. So maybe the 90s or early 100s, right? There's a document called the Didache. And in that document, uh, the author writes about the description of baptism. And in it, he says that uh, to be baptized, uh, you must be baptized with the, with the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what he says is living water. By that, he meant like a running stream or something like that, right? He says if there's no living water, then standing water. He says that if you can't immerse them, then you need to pour over their head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Literally that early in the church, right? So the church had no qualms with the amount of water. It just had said there has to be water. It'll be, it won't be until later on into the Protestant Reformation and the reformers from all of that who said that, no, the word baptism means immersion, so therefore you have to be immersed. But that's not what the church history for the last 1,600 years ever had done, and that tells us that that's probably not how the disciples had done it either. You know, if you think about a lot of places that they're preaching and teaching— Right. So <laughs> you might not have that easy access to water all the time. And also, if you think about the persecutions in the early church, if you're baptizing anybody who's in near death, like that, mm -hmm. how am I supposed to get either standing water right. for them or if it has to be you know, moving water, then it's impossible to baptize. But if I'm going to them and I have a little bit of water in like a bottle or something like that, I can then Absolutely. in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and get them baptized so that if they're to die in prison or if they're set to be executed, they have that security as well of you know being gifted with baptism. Yeah. You had one follow-up with it. Yeah, sorry. I, no, go for it. I, I was just, it was just occurring to me that I, I had seen something from, I, I don't know if they were Catholics or not, but um, someone I, I saw online once, and I, I was just thinking about this, that... They had already been baptized, and I know you don't at least rebaptize. Yeah, yeah. rebaptize. But they went on a trip to the River Jordan, and and they like did a ceremony of baptism there. So I don't. Is, I, I mean, I, I know it's not like recognize recognize the same, um, and it's probably just like a symbolic gesture. But I kind of feel like the. I don't know if that's that. That seems against. Well, if that person's not like, I get baptized again. No, what that what that is is very much likened to when you walk into the church and you dip your hand in the holy water and you say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's more of like a renewal of your baptismal promises. We do that all the time. The sprinkling rite. That's a renewal of your baptismal promises, right? And that's so that's more something along akin to that than than a rebaptism. It wasn't until the Anabaptist, which literally means rebaptize. Uh, came along and said, like, oh, no, baptism has to be this way or it's not valid. Yeah. Cool. All right. Ready to jump into more form? I, I'm going to skip the rest of the form and matter stuff, but those are great questions. I love jumping into that kind of stuff, so that's great. All right, so that's the form and matter, right? So we don't mess with that, right? That's how serious all this stuff is. And there are canon lawyers waiting for the, for the opportunity to give pronouncements on these things. But here's the other part of that, right? So we assume a sacrament is valid until proven otherwise. So you, you don't just go around being like, oh, I'm not sure that you were baptized because, you know, it's, 
I don't remember what, what actually occurred. The priest could have said something funny. Well, well, we assume that the baptism is valid unless, unless proven otherwise for some legitimate reason, right? Unless something comes out of that, oh yeah, that priest totally was doing this. Then we got to do the investigation, something like that. So you don't, sh- if you have been baptized, you should not like overly be concerned about your baptism because it's, it's valid unless it's like really shown that it's not, okay? And so, okay, let's move forward. And God will make up for our failures. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shoot. Okay, so if if baptism's not done correctly, and you you were not, I mean you were you were there, and you didn't know it wasn't done correctly, then what are the consequences? Sure. So that's the uh, the old saying that God binds Himself to the sacraments, but God is not bound by the sacraments. You know what I'm saying? So we know that we can receive God and be in communion with God through the sacraments. God, that's the ordinary way that He gave this to us. But we can also imagine a scenario of a, uh, of a person who, um, let's say, lives on an island by themselves. I don't know how they got there by themselves, but they were born there and their parents are dead and they've just survived there. Never met any kind of civilization or anything, but in their own way, uh, sought truth and tried to understand that there was something more than themselves here. Uh, and we believe that even if that person has not received a baptism, that God can still offer salvation to that person. It would be outside the norms because Jesus clearly established a norm, right? He established a church to protect those norms and to guarantee that you can be in communion with God, right? You can know that you're in communion with God through the sacraments, right? But that doesn't mean that God, has, that God is strictly bound by them. God is God. He can do with what, what he wants. And so, like, for example, the classic example on this is like um, a baby who dies before being baptized, right? And there is still no church pronouncement on what actually happens there. Like, there the, the theologians uh, in modern times will say, like, we lean on God's mercy because we do believe God's merciful, right? But, but uh, we, we do believe God, God can act outside the sacraments. Um, the, the, uh, another example would be the, the good thief on the cross. He was not baptized, and yet Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, um, sorry, my friend. No, keep going. Yeah. But how is that any different than than the form of the word being literal, what's the genesis of the argument then for the form of the word being literal versus, um, it, you know, if you don't know that it's not literal? That's the difference when you don't know. I mean, if your intention is there, then what's... Yeah, that's, that's, God makes up for our ignorance, right? Whenever we don't know something through no fault of our own, God, God, God's mercy is what we rely on in those situations. I think about going to church uh, where I don't understand something mm-hmm. in a different language. Yeah. And I don't know. Oh, exactly. so for something like, for like to, to make sure like the, the, the mass itself was, was performed correctly. So uh, in that, what, okay, we kind of rely on um, the, the rubrics of the church. For example, like uh, the church gives the priest, you're supposed to say and do this, Right. And most priests, like 90% of priests, 99% of priests are doing the right thing, right? They're doing what they want to do because that's why they became priests. Is that maybe why they're reading it out of a book a lot of times? Exactly why they're reading it out of a book, right? Even if they have it memorized, they got the book there, right? That's why you get a picture when you travel, you go to a parish that is part of the diocese. Of the diocese. Right. Because then you're trusting that the bishop oversees that parish, has made sure the priests there are in good standing with the church. And you're not just trusting on that priest, you're trusting on the bishop of that diocese. Right. Same thing as like if you come here for, um, for confession on Saturday morning 
and normally you're going to Father Vic because Father Vic's always there or whatever, and then all of a sudden you see Father Manuel or something like that, and you're like, I don't know this guy, but you still go to confession to him because he's at the church, because you can trust that, oh, the church has vetted this guy, he's supposed to be here, he has the authority of the bishop to be here. Um, does that make sense? Same, that's why when you're looking for a church to go to, that's what you're doing. Yeah. If you drive up one Saturday morning and there's a guy in black sitting in a chair on the street in front of the church with a sign that says confessions, don't go to that one, right? That seems sketch, right? <laughs> He's got a white van with candy in it saying, I got confessions right here. You know, that's not a, that's not a guy you want to go see, right? You don't think we have people come and pretend to be priests here? You're mistaken. Yeah, but they would, they would not be in this room behind the confessional on a Saturday morning, though. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Ah, that's interesting. This is great, guys. I love, I love when you guys have questions. All right, so going into... Um, so, so that's the, those are the essential things, right? And so, but, but the other thing that we got to remember that everything that surrounds the, each of these rites um, is meant to uphold the, that central thing, right? So everything that happens at Mass is meant to uphold and enhance what we're receiving in the Eucharist. That's why at the beginning of Mass, what do we do? We read salvation history. We read how God has came to his people, how God has encountered us throughout all of salvation history, Right? And the, the homily is kind of that splitting point where he's like, all right, this is, this is how we are to live as Christians. It's how we're to under, understand how God has interacted with, with us in salvation history and how that's moving in your heart today, right? right? Then we move forward into now, we're about to receive, we're, God's going to enter into salvation history again and we're going to receive him. So everything from there is again pointing to God entering into salvation history, which is why we begin the, the Eucharistic prayer with that holy, holy, holy. Where, where is that in scripture? Revelation, right? You have the angels circling, circling the throne, and, 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 in, and in the vision of Isaiah, you have the angels circling the throne of God forever saying, holy, 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 right? That thrice holy. Why is it holy, holy, holy? I don't know. I think I've mentioned it in this class before, a couple of classes ago, where um, the Hebrew language does not have um, comparatives or superlatives. So you can't say like holy, holier, and holiest, right? So what do you do instead? If, if it's something that's very holy, what do you call it? The holy of holies right? The inner sanctuary of God's presence. So if you're literally in heaven circling around God himself, the imminent nature of God, what do you say? Holy, holy, holy. The holiest thing that's there, right? That's why the mark of the beast is not just the number six, which is the sixth day is when the beasts were created of earth, but rather it's the 666, right? You are of beastly nature, right? So anyways, yeah, superlatives and, hyper and, and comparatives anyway. So that's, that's where all that, yeah, go for it. Question, really. I'd be going back to the forms and matters, but sure. the anno uh, you know, anointing of the sick. Yeah. Do Catholic, you know, priests, do they lay hands? Uh huh. They <laughs> actually pray and lay hands. I've never seen that. that in so, in the anointing of the sick. They do it all the time, like every church, every, they're always laying hands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So we do it a little bit differently as Catholics, but the imposition of hands is, is like a, very much a Catholic thing. We'll go all the way back, back to Acts. That's literally what they called the Sacrament of Confirmation before we started calling it Confirmation in the West and Chrismation in the East. It was the imposition of hands, right? That laying on of hands. So the anointing of the sick, there's a couple of ways that the priest does that. He'll anoint your forehead. He's laying his hand on your forehead, and he'll anoint the palms of your hands. He's laying hands on your hands, right? And so that's, uh, um, it's just, it's not as, uh, it, it, the definition got narrowed in some of the American, particularly American Protestant movements, where imposition of hands meant something very specific, and only this, this way is the imposition of hands. You know what I'm saying? 
And so um, that, that was a narrowing of something that was kind of more broadly used, the imposition of hands. So you'll see it, at, uh, you've, um, when, when your daughter was, 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 it, was it Ezzy too? Was he? Okay, uh, were, they, were they confirmed too at that mass? Uh, or was Ezzy wasn't old enough? Caddy got confirmed. Caddy got confirmed though. There's an imposition of hands there and Father John did it but he was far away because there were so many people. So rather than going individually to each person, the church gives dispensation for him to be able to do like this over all the people, right? Because he's going to be confirming all of them. That's still an imposition of hands. It's just not that narrow idea of imposition of hands is like, I got to do it like this, right? Because we haven't defined what imposition of hands actually looks like, just like the baptism. There's no definition of how much water. You just have to have it, right? Make sense? Makes sense. When cool. the Catholics in the room are confirmed this spring? Yeah, same thing. 125 will come being confirmed by the bishop? Yeah. So it's very practical for him to... Right. So don't, so don't go to the bishop and say, hey, 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 you didn't touch me. Hey! <laughs> he will still touch you on the forehead, right? By, but the imposition of hands part is... <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So, all right. So the, whenever, so we don't mess with the things that support up the, the main thing, right? So we don't want to mess with the tertiary things, but the tertiary because the tertiary things pour, hold up the secondary things, and the secondary things are meant to hold up the main thing, right? And this is this is uh, this is very important because we have the danger. I was telling, talking to this group over here. The danger is whenever we get to close to Christ, and, and what we want to do is um, what we what we've been doing throughout all of human history is trying to make God look like us. God has made us in His image and likeness, and we've been trying to return the favor, right? So what happens is we have a particular flavors that we like, and we're like, oh, uh, this seems like it's more appropriate for this. We should do it like this here, or why can't we do it like that there? But that's 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 not what the what we should we should not mess with the liturgies. Right, because the church has given us this liturgy and held held tight to this liturgy, and it, it, it may have changed slightly, but but the the point of it all has been there together, and it's all been under the uh, hierarchical rule and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be able to trust in that, right? So we shouldn't be messing with those things, because what's actually happening in the liturgy and what we're doing in the liturgy is um, when we enter into the liturgy, we're entering into something that, that God is doing, right? More than anything else. This is, this is one of the things that I, I, I harp on my teenagers and my small group leaders with all the time because when I, when I teach confirmation, most people, whenever they're receiving confirmation, they think what they're doing is becoming an adult in the church. I'm confirming my faith. I'm choosing this for myself. That's what most people think that they're doing whenever they receive confirmation. Sure, there might be an aspect of you confirming your faith. You're, you do renew your baptismal promises at that Mass. You, you do have the intellect at this age, particularly at high school or as, adult, as an adult, to be able to like look at your faith seriously and say, like, do, is this what I want for my life? Is this how I want to live? Is this the type of communion that I want to be in? Do I want Jesus? Right? You have the ability to look at that in a real way. But confirmation's actually about what God's doing for you. Remember, God's giving you sanctifying grace. And in the particular confirmation piece, he's giving you a, sa a sacramental grace to go out on mission, to go out and bring others to him. That's the point of it. That's the point of all of Pentecost. Go out and bring others to, to me, right? So that's actually what's, what's happening here in, in confirmation and um, uh, when we receive that sacrament, is that's what we're being sent forth to do, right? God is doing something. He's empowering us. All of our sacraments are about what God is doing, right? What we do is secondary. 
And the problem that oftentimes we have is that we don't have a personal devotional life where we enter into the devotions of the church. And so we make the liturgy our personal devotions. This is why I, I, I tell people they have to be praying every single day. You need to be talking and communing with God at home, reading the scriptures at home, however, um, however you enter into devotion at home. Or else the danger is you're going to want the liturgy to do that for you. That's not the liturgy's job. The liturgy's job is to give you Jesus in the Eucharist. That's the liturgy's job. The liturgy's job is to give you sanctifying grace, not to be your taste or flavor. That's not the point. You know, so the, here's the thing is like, we got to recognize that, that Jesus is doing something in the liturgy and we are participating in that. That's our, that's our, that's our role is Jesus is offering himself to the Father and he's inviting us to participate in that. I offer myself, you're coming with me. I'm in communion with the Father, you're coming with me. That's, that's the beauty of it. So whenever we mean full conscious and active participation, we don't mean you got to join the choir, be an usher, be an altar server. You don't, that's not what we mean with full active conscious particip- participation. Because remember, all the laity are, require, are called to full conscious and active participation, right? I, I think I mentioned my son. My middle son here, is, is, he's nine years old, but he has autism. He's called to full conscious and active participation in the liturgy. For that, for him, that means showing up, you know? And, and right now he has the capacity to sit when we're supposed to sit and stand when we're supposed to stand. That's that full active cart- conscious participation. Because if, if you know my son, that's, that's work for him. Like to be able to sit when he's supposed to sit and stand when he's supposed to, he kneels when he's supposed to kneel, which I think is so stinging cute. But, <laughs> but he'll kneel, kneel right next to me and he'll, he'll look for affirmation too because he loves me. But uh, that's, that's what we're called to primarily is showing up, right? According to our capacities, we can enter into deeper, uh, deeper participation in all those things, right? So, like, whenever you look at all of this, like, um, I want to look through. I want to look through some of the signs, but if, but, uh, but the fullest way that we can actively participate in in the life of Christ, in in the, the liturgies, in the sacraments, the fullest way that we can become like God is literally to be martyred, right? That's the that's the fullest way we could be like Jesus is like to die for our faith, right? And you might be called to that someday, but probably not, not here in any time soon, hopefully. But, uh, but, but that could be a, a real reality. So we enter into the, the full participation according to, um, to uh, as what Jesus is doing, according to our capacities, right? And so what I want to go through is some of these... No, I'm not. All right, what I wrote down for you <laughs> was, because I'll be here till nine o'clock, was some of the, some of the ways that we enter into this, uh, enter into the liturgy and the proper form of entering into the liturgy and what, the, what these parts, what these secondary and tertiary things of the liturgy are actually meant to do for you. Like sacred music is not there just because, hey, it sounds good to have a song right here. No, <laughs> that's not why it's there. You know, they're actually serving a purpose. The, the, um, the, the, the postures that we have are actually serving a purpose. And I put, all, I put a bunch of them down in here and you guys can read them and go through that. Um, but the last thing that I want to really end with here is, um, I have to skip that small group discussion, is this last sentence that they have in that, in that paragraph, right? So the sacraments here that give us sanctifying grace, they bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions that they bear fruit in those who receive them with required dispositions. What does that mean? It means that if, if I don't have myself right, the, the sacramental reality is still there because the, the priest did what he's supposed to do or whoever's administering the sacrament did what they're supposed to do. The form of matter is all correct. 
but I might not receive the grace of that sacrament if I don't have the full, if I don't have the proper disposition. Baptism, for example, perfectly valid baptism. That doesn't automatically mean that I go to heaven, right? I could be baptized and still go to hell. Because if my disposition is not one that's not one of reciprocal nature, then it doesn't actually mean anything. If I'm not actually trying to be in relationship with God because that's not something that I want, God's not going to force me to go to heaven. That's what all the sacraments all are about here. And so when, that's why it bugs the crap out of me when people come to, to ask for the sacraments, but they're not asking for the sacraments. They're demanding the sacraments that I should be getting confirmed right now. Well, why? You don't even believe in God. Well, because my grandma wants me to get confirmed. I'll tell your grandma no too. You know, bring her in here. That's not, that's not what the sacrament, you don't get to abuse Jesus. You just don't. You cannot use, like, just like I won't let anybody uh, be in communion with my wife like that. Like, you can't use my wife. Like, you can't treat her like that. No. We got to protect Jesus as Mary protected him in the manger. Because he's that kind of vulnerable right now. Whenever he allows you to take him in the palm of your hands, he's that kind of vulnerable. Which is why, like, whenever you go and receive Jesus in the Eucharist, you're supposed to receive him and consume him in the sight of the person that, dis that distributed him to you. So that way we know that you didn't take him and des desecrate him somewhere. Because we are responsible for protecting Jesus. He's fragile in, in the Eucharist. And people all over, the, all over the world, especially the United States, there's a lot of places out here where they actually want to take that and do terrible, terrible things to him. So we're responsible for protecting him. So the reciprocal nature. So how do we enter in with the proper dispositions? We enter like the hemorrhaging woman. Great scene in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter five, right? Uh, verse 25 to 34. So Mark chapter five, uh, it's just whenever Jesus is, is doing a bunch of healings and stuff like that. And this guy comes over, he says, hey, my daughter is, is, is near death's door. Come and heal her. And so Jesus starts walking on the way. And then there's a woman who has a hemorrhage in the crowd. And all these people are pressing upon Jesus, right? It says that there's a woman with a hemorrhage. She's had this hemorrhage for 12 years. And she says to herself, if I could just touch the fringe of her garments, I know I can be healed. That's the type of faith that she had in Jesus. If I could just touch him, I know that his divine power will come to me, that he will be with me, right? And so what does she do? Even as an unclean woman, right? You know, what could have happened? If she touched, if the unclean woman touches somebody else, that person becomes unclean, right? So if she touched Jesus, she risked making Jesus unclean. But just like the waters, Jesus doesn't get unclean. Instead, what happens? She is made clean. She gets Jesused. That's what happens. And Jesus is like, wait, 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 who touched me? And the disciples are like, seriously? Everyone, Jesus. Everyone has touched you. Let's go, right? But Jesus says, no. I felt power come from me. And the woman speaks up. She says, I, I'm the one who touched you. And what does he say to her? Go, daughter. Your faith has made you well. The proper disposition to all the sacraments is that kind of faith. In fact, if you look through, through the New Testament, whenever Jesus heals a person, whenever Jesus uh, um, raises somebody from the dead, for the most part, what, what do we have here? Some kind of physical interaction with that person, right? He's, he's making clay. He's, he's taking somebody by the hand. He's saying, uh, Talitha kume, Ephatha, right? He's saying, he, he's saying things to people, right? In, in individually, right? 
There's one really unique scenario that always sticks out to me when the centurion comes up and he says, um, Jesus, my servant is ill. Come and, uh, come and you know, he needs, he needs your help. And Jesus gets up, he's like, all right, let's go. And the centurion says, hold, hold, hold up. I'm not worthy for you to enter into my roof. But if you just said the word, I know my servant can be healed. And Jesus is like, that's faith. And so Jesus heals him from a distance. He could have done that with anybody. But Jesus always, he wants to have that physical connection because that's how God always has done it, right? But except in this case, when somebody else came on their behalf and said, Jesus, I need this. Will you do this? And he says, because of your faith, yes, I will. And so now you guys understand the role of a godparent, especially at an infant baptism. When the godparent steps in place for, for that infant and says, I'm going to stand before, and the parents come before and says, I'm going to stand before God. My, my child needs this. He needs you. She needs you. And Jesus says, because of your faith, let it be so, right? And so that's really, that's, that's the disposition that we need to enter into when we, when we come to receive the sacraments. We need to enter into that kind of faith, that Jesus is present there, that Jesus is desiring communion with us there, that this is the life of the Christian that this is how we are intimate with Christ, is being with him physically in the sacraments and not just talking to him on the phone in prayer. Let's pray. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we know the, the proper disposition to you, to the gifts that you give us in the church and the sacraments and all the graces that, you, that you've bestowed upon us, Lord. We know that the proper disposition is one of faith to know that you're there, but also one of thanksgiving. To not demand your presence, but to, to be thankful that you give it to us so freely. Lord, help us this day and every day as we move forward towards the sacraments to recognize them as a beautiful gift of yourself and teach us to lovingly see you in that gift receive it, and be thankful. We ask this in Jesus' matchless name as we pray. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.